0: Good morning. Christine gets the award for longest scripture passage ever read at New City. I really think it is the longest one. We actually had to shrink the font to fit it on this thing. I was asked, can you take part of this out? I said, no. No, I can't. But it, it, it brings its own challenges, obviously. Being committed to preaching through a book verse by verse, passage by passage, and yet not being in that book for a year. And so we'll be in 1 Corinthians in two separate sermon series. We'll take a break at some point in the fall, early fall. We'll be in it about 20 to 23 weeks, I believe, somewhere in there. But we still have to take passages like this. And so while I won't hit every single thing in the passage, and I won't even be able to hit every single thing that I wanted to hit, I think I'm being true to the passage and walking us through a large amount of what we just read. So the next two weeks, what Paul's really talking about is the purity of the church. He talks a lot about sexual morality. Uh, He talks a lot about other things as well. Greed, swindlers, idolaters, those who covet. What he's really interested in in these two chapters is the purity of Of God's church. Now what you and I might be interested in is tell me more about how this guy has his father's wife. What does that even mean? Well, you know what it means. And yet Paul doesn't seem so interested in dealing in too much depth with that. He actually spends much more time talking about the fact that the church was allowing this to take place and they knew about it and they were threatening the purity of the church. That is Paul's greatest fear and concern. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I think what's interesting about the church in Corinth, the church today, is that it's often pride that keeps us from purity. And pride was a huge deal in the Corinthian church. If you've been with us, you've heard us talk about pride. We've preached on the topic of pride. And in our passage this week, it's pride in the form of refusing to repent from sexual morality. Next week, it'll be the pride of refusing to repent to give up your own rights. And they were even taking each other to court, suing each other over small matters. So Paul's gonna deal with that next week. But in this week's passage, he addresses the pride and sin of sexual morality. Rather than a commitment to being a pure people, churches in Corinth and churches in America and all over the world are sometimes committed to being a polished people, right? And a polished people are people who preserve a certain look on the outside, even at the expense of being honest with what's going on on the inside. And I believe there are a lot of polished people here at New City. I'm one of them sometimes. I think the church, oftentimes in Corinth and in America and in the world today is a self-preoccupied people. People who believe that the purpose of the church is for us instead of the world. Church, the purpose of the church is the world and always unto the glory of God and his righteousness. The church in Corinth, the church in America and the church in the world oftentimes leave purity because of their pride and they become a actual prideful people who boasts in our perceived morality rather than being a people who proclaims the gospel with our lips Practices the life of faith in our lives. And you know what this looks like? When we live a a prideful, we're prideful people, we protect our own. We protect our own even when things like Ben prayed for lament are happening. And we hide it and we partition certain places in our lives and in our congregations that we declare off limits to speaking about. You know those movies, particularly in the 80s, where the parents, it'd be the summertime, which is coming up, the parents would leave and the kids would be going crazy, right? They'd leave one kid in charge of the house. Maybe these movies still happen. I just remember seeing a lot of them in the 80s. And then eventually towards the end of the movie, after all of the shenanigans are done, the house is chaos. There are holes in the wall, there's stuff everywhere. And the camera keeps going to the the mom, particularly for some reason, packing up her stuff, And then it shows the house in disarray. And then it goes back to the mom getting in her car. And then it shows a hole in the wall. And then it goes to the mom driving, but being stuck in traffic. And everyone's going crazy trying to clean up the house. And then right when you think there's no way they're gonna get the house in order before mom walks in, she walks in and everyone is reading a book, taking care of each other, looking completely under control. But in fact, there's a poster now or a picture in front of the hole in the wall They've stuffed things in the cracks and crevices of the couch and under the beds. And yet somehow the mom doesn't doesn't seem to look. And everybody wins, right? I wonder sometimes if we think God is like that mom, aloof and not expecting true cleanliness, just the appearance of cleanliness, right? We think he'll never check the cracks. He'll never check behind the picture, behind the painting that's portrayed, behind the poster. He'll never check behind that. He'll never check the cracks of the couch. But God is not satisfied with a polished people. God wants a pure people. And that's what these two chapters are about. God wanting a pure people, but not just for their sake, but for the sake of the world, his mission for them in the world. Listen, we are all broken and constantly in need of repentance. If any of us walk away from this passage thinking somehow we or the church or new city gets a pass, at least we're not like those people, I, I, would, I will have failed. We need to be a people who are not mainly focused on certain characteristics as much as we need to be focused on being a people who are turning our face constantly to a certain Christ, to the Christ who calls us to repent and put our faith in him over and over and over. So the question that I want running in our hearts and minds today is how can New City be a church that pursues purity and welcomes sinners? And I say, how can we become? Because I'm not sure we're there, but that's okay. I'm not sure I'm there all the time. How can New City become a church that holds the gospel tension between invitation and challenge in the Christian life? How can we do that? How can we be a leadership who walks with people to help you uphold the membership vows that you take? How can we shepherd you in this life? And so there are three movements in this passage that I want to highlight today. And the first one is this. Paul is talking about God's pure people. I've already said that Paul's main concern is not the individual offender. He deals with that pretty quickly, and we'll talk about that. But what, he, what he's mainly concerned about is the potential for this sin to spread and infect the rest of the church. The church for whom Christ died, he says, is to be a holy people with the presence and power of the Lord Jesus seen among us and to the world. And that's what he's concerned about. And I have three subpoints underneath this that won't be on the screen, but a lot of words that started with P came to me this week. So they all start with P. So maybe you'll be able to think about it. So first it's God's pure people Okay, and so what are what is what is the pitfall away from purity? I think it's the pitfall of pride. Look with me in verses one and two. He says, it is actually, this is chapter five, verses one and two, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Okay? First of all, sexual immorality in general as a gloss is any sexual act that does not conform to the structure and design of God which would be between one husband and one wife, one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Any sexual act, whether it be fantasy of the mind, whether it be images or videos viewed, whether it be anything acting out is sexual morality. Okay? So, but there's there's something interesting about this kind this sexual morality was of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now has his father's wife is different than had his father's wife. It wasn't just a one-time thing that just happened. He has her. This is an ongoing reality. Okay. Now when Paul says even pagans aren't cool with this, it's because both Jewish and Roman law had laws against this, right? You don't do this. Now, it's probably not his biological mom. It's probably his stepmom or maybe his father's concubine. It's not, we're not sure if the father has died or why this is happening, but we know that it's happening. And even the pagans would think this is insane. Now, this woman is probably not in the church. She's probably an unbeliever in Corinth, which is why she's not mentioned. Okay, only he is. And that's gonna be important for later on, right? So, not only is this happening, remember this is the pitfall of pride. He says, and you are arrogant. See, the Corinthians really believed that they had established some high level of spirituality in such a way that they were so mature that they were okay with this kind of stuff. I know it's twisted, but somehow we also can fall into these pitfalls of pride. We set up our own visions of correct theology and uh, social policy. And we basically say, as long as people conform to this, then we're okay and we can ignore other things. We do this in our own way all the time. Right? We become the authority and the Lord uh, and the Lord of our own lives and own churches to say what God really cares about and what he doesn't care about. They had convinced themselves that God didn't care about sexual morality. Now I know that's crazy to us, but that's what's happening. And they're arrogant about it. So there's a pitfall of pride in all of us. That's my point. What keeps us from purity is that we all have our own pitfalls to pride in churches, in times of church history, in specific countries and periods of time in those countries of what becomes the unpardonable sins of the church and what becomes okay. And we have our own now. And in this day and age, apparently anything to do with sexual morality, they were so holy, it was okay. Paul's not okay with that. And quickly he deals in verses three and four. He says, listen, we don't need to have a trial. I've already passed judgment on this act. He needs to be given over, delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, listen, I'm, I'm really not gonna go into this in detail. He does say this exact same phrase in Thessalonians. And so it seems to be some type of uh, practice that Paul had. And some of us think this is harsh, We might think it's harsh, but here's the thing, is that what Paul's hope and aim is, is that, look at this, verse five, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what Paul's assuming is that the benefit of being in the body of Christ is so strong that if this man was turned over into the realm of Satan and was cut off from corporate worship, was cut off from fellowship, was cut off from the means of grace, that he would actually miss it. So that's another question. Is New City the type of community that if people who are engrossed in some type of life addicting, life taking sin and we had to discipline them and out of the church, would they even miss being a part of this community? That's a question too, just to think about as we go. But it's not harsh, it's for his good. And Paul says, this man must be put out of the church. So the pitfall of pride was making them think that this was okay. What is it for us? Reflect on that. In your own life. But then he talks about the path to purity. If God's people are to be pure, what is the path to purity? Look with me in verses six through eight. He says, Listen, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And so we'll come back to verse seven in just a second. But leaven was fermented dough, and it was the practice of these people to oftentimes, as they were making new dough for bread the next week, to take a small pinch, not much, just a small pinch from the fermented leavened bread from the week before and mix it in the dough of this week so that it would continue to ferment, okay? And they just needed a little bit to ferment the entire loaf, to do the work, uh, just a little bit. And they knew this. And Paul's saying, sin is like that if you just take a little bit of sin and put it in the new lump, it's going to contaminate it immediately and irrevocably, except for verse seven, which we'll come back to in a second. But what he's saying is by analogy, when publicly known sin in the church is not subjected to church discipline, it will silently spread its destructive consequences throughout the whole fellowship. When publicly known sin is not dealt with by the church. Now I don't do this practice. I don't take leavened pieces of leavened bread, put it in a new in a new lump. But what we do, because we're those types of people, is that we brew our own kombucha. You guys know what kombucha is, okay? Uh, If you don't, just ask someone later or Google it later. But there is a bacteria in there that uh, puts, uh, it's called a SCOBY. You can Google what that means later too, S-C-O-B-Y. Okay, so it's in there and it's it's good for gut health, right? We've been doing this for years and years and years. Here's the thing though, is that when you are making a new batch of kombucha, you can't just wash your hands and touch the SCOBY. You actually have to take vinegar and you have to um, wash your hands in vinegar after soap. It's after soap, okay? Because you, even soap will contaminate the SCOBY, all right? You can't even use anything metal. I don't know why. Maybe some of you who are really good at science can tell me why, but something about metal will also contaminate it. So one time we bought a new container that has spigot and unbeknownst to us, there was just a little bit of metal right at the spigot and it contaminated the whole thing. Silently, but surely it spread and ruined the whole SCOBY, it took this much. And to me, I think, oh, I see why we have to be so careful. We have to put out that that might contaminate something quickly and irrevocably. But before Paul moves on, there's verse seven. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Okay, that's what he said, now it's easy maybe to read this and think what Paul is saying is get your life in order and then you'll be a new lump. Start behaving and then God will let you be a part of his people, right? Read it. Cleanse out the old lump. Get rid of it. Do it. Put your sin to death. That you might be a new lump. But he says, as you, all, as you really are unleavened. So you see, this is not a do in order to be, it's a do because you are. And some of you in your Christian life may ask yourself this question or a version of this question, when am I clean enough to be new? When have I cleaned up my life enough to be new? When have I beat myself up enough in order to be accepted? And Paul says, no, you're getting it all wrong. That's the wrong question. He's saying, you already are accepted. So when you find yourself unclean, drop it. Drop that thing. Drop that thought. Drop that impulse and turn to Jesus because you already are new. You already are new, Christian. So become who you are. And that's the Christian life, isn't it? Constantly repenting and turning back to Jesus. We, we tend to look at the characteristics of people and put them in categories. But you know, you can have the characteristics on the outside to look like a Christian and your face can be far away from looking at Jesus. So what I wanna know is my face looking at Jesus. The characteristics will follow. They will follow because that's how God works and changes his people. But are you looking to Jesus? Are you turning away from sin and looking to him in faith? That's what Paul is saying. That's what verse seven is about. And then he goes on, just in case we're not sure about this, you know where this whole leavened and Passover reality comes from? It comes from Exodus, when God was gonna rescue his people from Israel, I'm sorry, from Egypt and make them a people. And what he said was, I'm gonna bring my judgment upon Israel 1st uh, sorry, my judgment upon Egypt first. But what Israel also had to do was to do what? They had to put the blood of the sacrificed lamb on their doorpost. But what else did they have to do? They had to get rid of the leaven in the house, didn't they? They had to get rid of it. So you you don't have time. You got to get rid of this unleavened bread. We got to go. We don't have time to wait for that thing to rise. We got to turn. We got to flee. And there's a practice of fleeing from sin. Don't mess around with it. We got to go quick. You got to get away. You got to turn. But was it the act of them ridding their house of leavened bread that saved them? No, it was not the act of getting rid of the leavened bread. It was the blood of the lamb that saved them. And so this, these verses are so gospel-centered. They're so Jesus-centered. So don't miss that. Don't think the, purity, the path to purity is your own work. Don't think that. The path to purity is looking to Jesus, your Passover lamb, the second half of verse seven. That's what Paul is saying. He's calling them to that. And see, that was the problem. In the pride, they refused to look to Jesus. Now listen, Christ has died for us, not simply to give us passage to heaven, but to recreate us in his own image so that both individually and corporately, we may express the character of God by the way we live in all of our lives. That's what Paul wants for the Corinthians. That's what he wants for us. So here is the summary of the path to purity. If you're thinking, I want to be pure, I want New City to be a pure church. How do we do that? Here's how I summarize it. Purity in this life does not look like prideful posing. Don't do that. Purity in this life does not look like spotless perfection. Don't expect that. It looks like persistent repentance and looking and turning back to Jesus. That's what purity looks like. That's the path to purity. So Paul says that God has a pure people and there are pitfalls and that's pride. There is a path to purity, which is looking to Jesus, which he calls them to do, become who you are. And then he says, let me build my prescription on a platform. Paul is never ever, what would I say? He's never uh, satisfied with just telling us what to do for the sake of telling us what to do. He always wants to tell us why. He always wants to tell us what it means about life with God to embrace the life that he calls his churches to for the sake of their purity. So if you look in verses 12 through 17, We'll come back to verses nine nine and 10 of chapter six. So I'm in chapter six, verses 12 through 17. Remember what Paul's doing is now he's taking on their misconceptions of purity. Uh, He's taking on their misconceptions of the holy life. Now you notice in verse 12, there's there's quotation marks. All things are lawful for me, okay? And then all things are, uh, again, all things are lawful for me. Verse 13, again, in quotations. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. What Paul's doing here is he's addressing phrases that the Corinthians were actually using to justify their behavior and their life. Okay, so when they were saying, all things are lawful for me, they were saying, because Jesus has fulfilled the law, I can live however I want, and it doesn't matter because Jesus has paid the penalty. I mean, that sounds, does that sound crazy to you? Okay, to them, it sounded really spiritual like, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live my life. Jesus saved me. He's my savior. I can live however I want. But Paul does what he's so good at and uses gospel judo. He takes their weight and uses it against them and throws them to the ground in a very loving way. Okay? And, and this is what, what they're saying is all things are lawful for me. And he says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. Are they? Are things working out for you guys? How's that going? It's not going well, is it? Then he says, Uh, they, he, what they're saying, uh, what Paul says is I will not be enslaved by anything. And isn't that interesting? There's a type of self-deception when we have an inflated sense of our own spirituality. There's a type of self-deception that feels like freedom, but it's actually enslavement of the worst kind because we actually think we're permitted to do something and it doesn't affect us. And we think we do it because we're free in Christ. And in fact, we're enslaved by it. I have a question. If you're truly free, don't you think you're not only free to do something, but you would be free to give it up? You'd be free not to do it. That's true freedom. So if there's something in your life that you think you're free to do, whether it's something you watch on TV or Netflix, something you engage in, places you frequent, maybe they don't seem wrong in and of themselves, but let me ask you a question. Can you thank Jesus for those things when you leave? When you stop, when you're finished? That's a decent question. And here's the other question. Could you stop? If you realized, oh, this isn't helpful to me. It might be lawful, but it's not helpful to me. Could you walk away from it? Or are you enslaved by it? See, self-deception of perceived spiritual maturity when in fact it's enslavement is the worst kind. And that's what Paul is speaking to. But then they also say something else. They say food, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And most commentators will say this is actually a continuation of their quote and God will destroy both one and the other. Either way, if Paul says it, or if it's a continuation of what the Corinthians were saying, this is basically what they're saying. Food is meant for the stomach. What they're saying is, listen, I have bodily urges like when I'm hungry, okay? And when I'm hungry, I eat, okay? When I have a sexual urge, I gratify it. That's just how it works. That's, how the, that's what the body's for. The body get, gets urges and then we satisfy those urges. That's what they're saying. Well, Paul disagrees, but he doesn't just disagree. He wants to give them a vision of why he disagrees. He wants to give them a theology of why he disagrees. So let me read to you a quote from a commentator that sums these two things up that I think is very succinct. Since everything is permitted for the Corinthians, and since food is for the stomach and stomach for food, because of course, after all, God's gonna destroy both in the end. And since all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, that means that the body's for sex and sex for the body. And because God will destroy them both in the end, who cares? But their conclusions were dead wrong on both accounts. The body is not for sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, or we get our word pornography. The body is not for sexual morality. The body is for the Lord. And it is not destined for destruction, but for resurrection. And the proof of which is Christ's resurrection. And Paul will come back to that in chapter 15. There's a whole chapter on the resurrection and the implications of our life. And so basically, what the Corinthians and what we must recognize is that we've been incorporated into one body with Christ. And therefore what we do with our physical bodies matters before the Lord. Everything we do with our physical bodies matters before the Lord. And any form any form of sexual morality indicates an abuse of your own body. Self-abuse. It seems so gratifying and you're beating yourself. You are abusing yourself. You're sinning against your own body in a way that only sexual morality can do is what Paul is saying. And not only that, you're obscuring the community from holiness. See, we think that sexual morality is only about us. It's about the whole community. Everyone is affected. Whether, if you're married, of course your spouse is affected. But even if you're not married, all of us are affected by your continue, continued enslavement to this sin. And so one other commentator says, what you do sexually, you do with your whole self, not with one little bit of you. And what you are and do as a Christian, you are and do as your whole self, not just with the spiritual part of you. Every part of you is involved. And so that was my longest point of the sermon. And that is God wants his people to be pure. And what keeps us from purity is our pride. Okay, And the path to purity is not our own works. It's not our own self-righteousness. It's looking to Jesus and embracing who we are. But then Paul doesn't wanna stop there and just tell us what to do. He builds a platform. He builds a new view of humanity, right? We are one with Christ like a husband and wife are one. And just like when you commit sexual morality and you're married, you commit a sexual sin against your own body, including your spouse, because you're one body now and against the whole community because all of you are the body of Christ. And it all matters. So if God wants a pure people, he also wants a peculiar people. You may be thinking, gosh, if Damien said at the beginning, he wants us to be a people of invitation and challenge, a people who is serious about purity, but also welcome sinners. How are sinners gonna come into this place if this is what we do? And right, if this is who we are? Well, Paul actually talks about that. Look with me in chapter five, verse verse nine. See, the Corinthians were also confused about this. Paul, if you want us to be pure, then how do we deal with those who are living this lifestyle? He says this, I wrote to you in my letter, it was a different letter, one that's been lost that we don't have. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Purge the evil person from among you. Listen, Paul is not saying the church is to be a separatist community in the way that some churches have taken this. That if we somehow are around those people in the world who live a sinful lifestyle, that we will be contaminated by them. Listen, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was really with them in meaningful relationships. So much so that the religious people were scandalized. Listen, the Christian life is a scandalous life because we are people who mess up in big ways regularly. And God continues to offer us forgiveness as we turn from our sin and look to him. That is scandalous. And if you are committed to self-righteousness, you won't be able to stick around in a gospel-centered church very long because eventually the polishedness will fall away and you'll be known for who you are and, and other people will be known for who they are. And the only person that will be able to gather around is Jesus because there will be no untouchable person. So we're not called to be a separatist community. Verse 11, he tells us something very important. I'm writing to you not to associate. That's a very close word. So think very intimate association, okay? Not just I'm around these people or I go to restaurants with these people. Associate is a very strong word. With anyone who bears the name of brother. Listen, what Paul is talking about is someone who has decidedly professed faith in Christ. They've been baptized into the triune name and yet they continue to live a life that is committed to their previous ways of sin that they supposedly left behind. Okay, Paul is talking about people who are more committed to their sin than they are to Christ. He's talking about people who are more committed to rebellion than they are to repentance. He's not talking about people who struggle with sin. Otherwise... (laughs) we all would be in trouble. We we wouldn't be able to associate with anybody, even in the church. He's talking about people who are Christians, people who have professed faith in Christ and yet refuse to fight with sin. Paul says, put them out because they will contaminate the whole church and put them out for their good. Now, listen, there are a list of sins that he gives that people in Corinth were continuing to practice. Now, listen, they had come from a very pagan world, even more probably pagan than what we experience in some ways, very much like what we experience. They had come, they're new converts, right? They're babies, he's got to change their diapers. They still don't have any idea what's going on. So he's dealing with this reality. But this, this, is a, this is a challenging thing to leave 20, 30 years of life and then be in this new community. And he's walking them through this. He lists a whole bunch of things, but I want to pick out one thing. And that is when he says, men who practice homosexuality. Now, I want to do it for three main reasons, because we could talk about greed, and maybe we ought to, but this is one of six passages that talks directly about practice of homosexuality. So let's do it. I mean, we're right here, and the first thing is it's a very hot cultural issue. The second thing is ever since the tragedy, the massacre that happened at Pulse, Orlando, who's a city coming into its own, is trying to find an identity, and we have become known in some ways as a city that comes behind the LGBT community, okay? And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm making an observation is all I'm doing at this point. But this is where we live. So it's not just somewhere out there, it's somewhere in here. So I think it's important to talk about. The other reason is because again, as a pastor, as your pastor, I don't know of people who are writing books in the mainstream Christian literature arguing that the practice of stealing or the practice of greed, or the practice of swindling is a legitimate Christian lifestyle. But I do know of books that people are writing that the practice of homosexuality is a legitimate Christian lifestyle. And because of that, I wanna speak to it for a moment. I want to point out particularly that what Paul is pointing to is the practice of homosexuality. The lifestyle, acting out, embracing of all that that entails. The acting out is key. The practicing of homosexuality. Okay? Listen, I've read some, I'm by no means an expert on this. But I've read some things that have been so convicting on how the church should lean into this issue that I just want to, I want to ask us one question. Can we as New City be a community that is so welcoming, that is so gospel-centered, that is so loving of neighbor, that we can welcome in those people who aren't currently believers, they're not currently professing faith in Christ into this room with us and our families on Sunday mornings who are curious about Christianity and living and practicing a homosexual lifestyle. Can we handle them in here? Can we? But even more challenging than that actually is can we hold the gospel tension of invitation and challenge that says we reject that the only two positions in the culture, the only two positions would be to either alienate those people or fully affirm those people. Can we say, can we push back against those being the only two options? So what's the third option then? What is the third option? The third option is to become a type of community that's so gospel-centered. It's so peculiar, right? God's peculiar people. It's so peculiar that we will not either alienate these people nor affirm their homosexual practice, but journey with them, with them and alongside them as we all seek allegiance to Jesus as Lord in every area of our lives. So it's not, it's not affirmation wholesale and it's not alienation. It's join us in allegiance to Jesus and we all have things to repent of. This is not the sin. It's also not, the, your acceptance of this is also not the marker if you're a loving person, which our culture would say that it is. So listen, I don't know how to do this, but I know that increasingly, if we are making whole life disciples for their callings and we are befriending our neighbors and we are proclaiming our, publicly faith, our public faith and good news in evangelism and we're loving these people as friends, we will become true friends and we will be inviting them into our life and into our community. And eventually we will have to call them to allegiance with us to Jesus. And that's what I want for us. And how is this possible? Verse 11 is how it's possible. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Listen, we were washed. That's how we're holy. It's not because of our sexual orientation. People don't go to hell because they're heterosexual or homosexual. People go to hell if they don't accept Jesus as Lord and King of the universe and submit to him. We're washed when we do that. We're sanctified. We're made holy by the spirit of our God. We all have sexual brokenness, all of us. The question is, is will we acknowledge Jesus's rightful rule over our sexuality and the rest of our lives? So, Paul talks about God's pure people to the Corinthians. He talks about God's peculiar people that won't be separatists, but will welcome sinners and won't alienate them, but won't fully affirm them, but will call everyone in the community to allegiance to Jesus's lordship. But he also says, how is this possible? It's because you are God's purchased people. Look with me quickly to chapter six, verses 19 and 20. At the end of this whole section, before he moves on in chapter seven, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen, what he's saying is, yeah, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, but you can never tell the Holy Spirit to go on vacation. The Holy Spirit resides in you. He's always with you. He's in you, he's been given to you. But then he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Anytime we have this language of being bought with a price, this is ransomed language. We talked about this if you were at our public faith class yesterday. This is ransom language. This is language of a slave being set free, of a prisoner being released from captivity. And what Paul is saying is if you're in Christ, this drive to sin may seem so strong in you, but those shackles that once were on your arms, those shackles that once were on your legs, those things have been released, step away and you'll see the chains are off. Now, here's the thing though, of what happens when we're so used to having chains on like the Corinthians were and like many of us are because of our stories. My sister, when she was a little girl, broke her leg. She had just started walking and she broke her leg. Now, it's always bad to break your leg, but when you've just started walking, it's really bad because the first then. I don't know, 12 weeks. I'm not sure how long the cast was on. It was from her ankle all the way up to here, mid-thigh. And so she learned to swing that thing around, right? She just swung it around just like that. And then she got it off and she just kept swinging it around. And she learned to run like that. And it was like very awkward. She's swinging the right leg around, swinging it around. Now it took about a year for her to finally get a normal gait, even though the cast was gone. And listen, it may take you what seems like a lifetime to find your normal free gate in Christ, to leave behind those old sin patterns of your life. It may feel like a lifetime, but they are taken care of. My sister's cast was gone. It was removed. She needed to embrace the fact that it was gone. She needed to realize and turn to her newfound freedom with this cast taken off. And so where Paul ends is to call us to the empowered life of the spirit to walk in freedom turning from our sin and repentance and then having our brothers and sisters preach truth to us and turning to Jesus over and over because God is in you God is with you God is for you let's pray father we ask now that you would help us this is heavy but very important I pray that all of us would more fully embrace our ransomeness by Christ, that we would fully embrace the reality that we already are made new. We just need to turn to that over and over. Help us be the type of community that calls everyone, no matter what their life looks like on the outside, to allegiance to Jesus. And as we are following Jesus, help us turn from all of those sinful practices and sinful desires that are disordered in our heart and help us become the holy, peculiar, purchased people that we are. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.